morning. Good morning, Professor Barrow. How are you? Um, welcome out of the box, listeners. As promised, today we're continuing on with the series we launched last week, Through the Marxist Lens, featuring acclaimed professor Clyde Barrow. Last episode, we gave you a bit of backstory on the Marxist interpretation of Trump's rise. Today, we'll be diving into how the Democrats lost the working class blue collar labor vote to Trump. First, a little backstory. I always associated the Democrats with labor forever. I mean, going back to, I don't know, the immigrant days in 1880s when they arrived here from uh, Europe en masse and uh, quickly faded into the urban landscape. Tammany Hall and the Democrats signed them right up and they became the, the working class, you know, of the Democrat, the working class backbone of the Democratic Party. Uh, that was a it was powerful, it was strong. Men like Eugene V. Debs, uh, who were Democrats, became socialists, led strikes. Uh, the, they were the champions of the labor movement. I mean, just when you said Democrats, you said union, you said workers. That was the that was the association. We all thought Republicans were the bankers, the, the owners of the, the vast industries like the railroads, like oil, like the mines, like the factories. And then they became sort of small town uh, bankers, you know, country club members. That was who the Republicans were. Yes, there were the Dixiecrats, there were the Southern Democrats, the George Wallaces that 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 evolved in the 70s as a racial party, uh, anti-integration party. But by and large, we've still felt that the Democrats controlled the blue collar vote. I was aware personally that there was a change of this uh, in the midterm elections of, I think, 2014, when the Democrats lost the House under uh, Obama. Uh, I wrote an article at the time called uh, Democratic Losses Made in China. I was so appalled by the fact that the Democrats in uh, Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin and Illinois voted for Republican congressmen. Something was wrong. I saw that there was something going on that didn't make any sense. And uh, it seemed to me to be all about, you know, China and free trade. Well, today's New York Times business section headline. Uh, let me read it to you. Gospel of free trade loses its luster. Yes, here we are today, March 19th, with that headline from the New York Times that everybody has realized that, quote, free trade has not worked for the Democratic working class and something is wrong. So these are my observations, but we're here to really hear from Professor Barrow and his idea of, through the lens of Marxism, why and how the Democrats lost the blue collar vote and how and why Trump was able to to gain that vote. Professor Barrow, please tell us what happened. Well, I, thought, I think your description of the, of the history of the Democratic Party, certainly up through the New Deal until about 1975, is, is an accurate one. Uh, but I would suggest that the, the Democratic Party partly lost the working class, but in the United States, uh, it really abandoned the working class. Hmm. Uh, and, and that really comes out of the events of the late 60s through the, through the early 70s, uh, primarily in the rise of the new left. And as you'll recall, that uh, the new left was, was much like Bernie Sanders today, an insurgent movement that, that sought to take grassroots control of the Democratic Party. In many respects, it, it was somewhat successful in doing that in certain areas. And it was the, the tension, really, between this new left and the labor movement that started to splinter the uh, Democratic Party coalition. And, and I'll just give you some examples of a few issues. Please. 
Uh, the AFL-CIO, for example, uh, was very supportive of the war in Vietnam, and of course the new left was anti-war. Uh, the new left was pro-racial integration, equal opportunity, affirmative action. Uh, many labor unions were predominantly white. Uh, there was a racial hierarchy within the working class. Uh, they were resistant to integrating their unions in many cases. There were the issues of gender and women's equality, which began to arise at that time. Uh, unions were overwhelmingly male uh, and male-dominated. Uh, that posed another source of tension. And then, of course, this was also the period when we saw the rise of the environmental movement. Uh, and many uh, workers in many industries saw environmental regulations as a threat to their jobs. Uh, eventually, what happens, uh, you can choose your date, whether it was 1972 or 1976, but effectively at the conventions of the Democratic Party, a very conscious decision was made to break with organized labor, uh, at least, uh, that they were headed down a different path, uh, primarily the path of what we now call identity politics, where they saw their future resting on issue, cultural and social issues like race, gender, the environment, uh, and, and others. And as a consequence, uh, the labor movement was sort of left in abeyance. Uh, the entire working class was increasingly abandoned over time. And then I would ask one last component of this. By the late 70s, what you had coming out of that era of stagflation. We often forget that the 74-75 yep. recession yes. at the time was called the Great Recession. <laughs> so that, <laughs> that was the first Great Recession we'd seen in this country since yeah. the Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, and a large number of young new Democrats, which at the time were called the Atari Democrats, <laughs> decided that they had to become more pro-business they had to focus more on economic growth rather than on economic redistribution. You know the names, Paul Songus, Al Gore, Bill Bradley, uh, Michael Dukakis. It's a long list of them. Uh, and so what they decided was to redefine the Democratic Party as one that was pro-market, pro-business, fiscally conservative, yet culturally and socially liberal on those issues. And that's the Democratic Party we've inherited all the way down to Hillary Clinton. Well, there was no economic agenda for the working class in that Democratic Party. Uh, and so they were effectively left in the lurch for several decades. God, yes, that makes total sense. Now, did Marx foresee this in the sense that he thought the bourgeoisie, if you will, will always protect itself, that they will never give up their privilege and their power and their economic uh, advantage? Uh, why would uh, the Democrats forsake labor for these other issues, uh, environment, cultural, you know, gender, uh, anti-war, whatever? I mean, on a, on a deeper historical analysis, why would Marx yeah. have thought that this would occur in, in a capitalist society? Yeah, well, it was an electoral strategy that was based on a long-term conception of the direction of capitalist development. And when I referred to the Atari Democrats, interestingly, all of those people have left a, a legacy of writings uh, and books behind them, so we know what they were thinking. <laughs> and essentially, uh, their thinking was that the United States was in the process of shifting from an industrial to a post-industrial society, which was actually correct. Mm -hmm. uh, that meant that the working class, rather than being a rising class, as Marx had predicted, 
would be a declining class, at least in the sense of an industrial proletariat. That steel was gone, autos were gone, textiles and the apparel industry were gone. That but all they of made, these industries, but they made it go. I mean, you, they, it didn't just quote disappear. Your, your, your feeling is your that they, that the Democratic Party, in cahoots, if you will, with the Republicans on this quote free trade issue, um, sort of willed it away. Gave it well, to that's true. China. That's exactly you right. mentioned this before. Gave it to the the Asians through free trade agreements. I think you mentioned the Tokyo round in the last episode. You know, it was like, okay, we can like sacrifice these people. They're disposable. It was. That's an important point. It wasn't just an inexorable trend in the development of capitalism. It was a policy decision that was implemented uh, through a whole variety of of trade and economic agreements during that period of time. And so the, the basic idea was if the working class is going to disappear, uh, <laughs> then we need to find an alternative base for our political party. And the Democrats, you know, went the direction of, I guess we could call it identity politics, for lack of a better word. There were policy prescriptions being made at the time, all the way up now through Joe Biden. Uh, the view was that we would ex- expand educational opportunity and reskill these former industrial proletarians, you know, I guess to become technicians and programmers and, and all these sorts of things. And if you look at the, the at the policy history of the Democratic Party throughout that period from about 1976 under Jimmy Carter, right up through Joe Biden, you know, during the campaign, Joe Biden said to a bunch of unemployed coal miners in West Virginia, yeah. the solution to your problem is yeah. to learn code. Yeah. Right. You need to go back to college and learn how to become a computer programmer and to, you know, a 48 year old unemployed steel worker. There's not a resonance to that solution. Yes. I am aware of everything that you just said. I do understand that the Democrats and the Republicans probably thought that this prosperity that would come from free trade would create a service. I think it was called the service economy they, yes. that we weren't going to make things anymore. All those Asians in those low, low wage places were going to make everything for us and we'd buy them so cheaply. I mean, we'd be able to buy washing machines and televisions and, you know, uh, blenders and electronics at a fraction of what we could produce it for. So we'd have so much more disposable income and the service economy would, would rise and, I have written about you know, the, the exact same thing that you're talking about, that the Democrats thought they become massage therapists and hurts reservation car takers. You know, I mean, that the service economy would take over instead of the industrial economy. Of course, none of that happened. Well, and um, by the way, there were areas of the, you know, small areas of the country. Yeah where this policy was pursued uh, aggressively and successfully. You know, I lived in Massachusetts for 27 years. Uh, That's a state where nearly 40% of the entire population now has a college degree. Uh, They consciously based their economy on the development of things like professional and financial services, high-tech industries, and they did that very successfully. But even at the end of the day, you still had 67% of the population with a high school diploma or less. So effectively, a college degree became the dividing line between two classes, the educated and the not so educated. And that 67% of the population was literally just forgotten. Democrats had no policy prescription to address their distress. Right. So this does fall within your analysis or Marx's analysis of capitalism, this big abandonment of the Democratic Party, of, of its working class base. 
is what he said capitalists would do, regardless of where they were Democrats or Republicans. Obviously, there were different parties when he wrote in, you know, the 1880s. But in fact, capitalists would, you know, gladly turn their backs on on, on labor in order to increase capital or increase their wealth. That yeah. they were dispendable. Is that is that that's been your analysis? And, and yeah, I, I think so. In fact, there's what's increasingly a very famous uh, speech that Marx and Engels gave. Uh, in 1850, when they were reconstituting the Communist League in, in England following the 1848 revolutions. And Marx, it's the one time he really sort of lays out what should be the electoral strategy of the working class in the future. And he makes it very clear that, that workers need to create their own independent party. Mm-hmm. They may not win elections for a very long time, but they will be there, he says, basically for two purposes. One is to sort of stake out their policy prescriptions. Right? These are the policies that we want. And the second is to expose what he called the dishonesty of the petty bourgeois party, which in our country would be the Democratic Party. And we've actually seen a little bit of that strategy on, on the left, because what he said essentially was, was this. And I'm going to sort of radically paraphrase him sure. here and uh, to so to use Elizabeth Warren. And it was basically, he says, you know, if the Democrats propose letting the Trump tax cuts expire, let's propose a radically progressive graduated income tax in its place. Uh, he says, if somebody proposes that we bail out General Motors, <laughs> well, let's do it, but let's not sell the stock back to the people who bankrupted the company. Let's keep it nationalized and maintain a public stake in it so that we benefit from its from its uh, prosperity in the future. So it is basically, let's, let's outdo them. Every time a liberal makes a proposal, mm-hmm. let's make a more radical proposal and force them in our direction. His argument was you need an independent voice on the left to constantly put that position in front of people. And and Marx's view was at some point there will be a crisis that will drive people in your direction, in the direction of the left. Okay. So let's talk about Trump and and how did this, this baby um, uh, of of the democratic uh, labor force get delivered Donald Trump wrapped up in a blanket and put on his doorstep. How did he do it? How did he perceive that you know, a, 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 that we don't want free trade? So he went against the Republicans on free trade. He he slammed China globalization. You know, he all of the things that that his Republican country club industrial billionaire uh, backers have believed and benefited from for decades now. He basically turned his back on on them. And he went to the you know, blue collar, the industrialized America, the Rust Belt, and called it carnage. Uh, that was the Steve Bannon term for what happened to America, carnage. And they all flocked to the polls. He, he won, and uh, the rest is history. Well, first of all, I would say Donald Trump did not turn his back on the country club. He gave them everything they wanted. He created the illusion that Fair he enough. would do something for the working class. Uh, but I also want to say that just in terms of the rhetoric between the two parties, you will never hear a Democrat, with the exception maybe of an AOC or a Bernie Sanders, use the term working class. They always talk about the middle class because they view that's their constituency, even though most Americans don't realize that Technically, what constitutes the middle class is only about 20, 25 percent of the population. You're talking to a to a very affluent, uh, well-heeled, educated segment of the population. Trump was the only candidate who 
said working class, right? Who sort of addressed the issues of deindustrialization and many of the cultural issues that seemed to bother them. Uh, and let's not forget that in 2016, the polls were showing that a lot of those Trump voters would have voted for Bernie Sanders had the yes. Democratic Party given them the option to do that. Uh, and they again chose not to do that. So they went, to, and as you look at some of the exit polling and focus groups and people said, well, you know, we were in such a desperate situation. We said, let's give it a chance, right? At yep. least he's talking our language now. Uh, what do we got to lose, as Trump said? Well, we found out what we had to lose. But what policies did Trump actually pursue? Well, I would say the signature achievement, if you want to call it that, of the Trump regime was the one and a half trillion dollar yes. tax giveaway to profitable corporations and billionaires. They got exactly what they wanted. Now, he talked the language of free trade, but, but what really did he do? You know, he started a trade war with China that actually hurt his own constituents. He renegotiated NAFTA on the margins in ways that really have no significant impact right. on the operation of, of that agreement. He turned Basically, the, he turned the farmers into, so, into socialists, you know, because he bailed out the farmers. I mean, the people who were screaming and yelling about, you know, don't bail out the banks, don't bail out the rich. He, he's, he ended up subsidizing them so greatly because China, you know, cut off uh, its, its, uh, its agricultural yeah, imports. And, and that's one of my pet peeves, too, it's, because when we say, quote, the farmers, Let's not labor under the illusion that there's some great yeah. class of small farmer out there like in the 1890s. The average American farmer today is ConAgra and Archer's Daniel Midland. Yep. Uh, agriculture is highly corporatized. In fact, I just read ADM actually now is experimenting with its first fully automated artificial intelligence agro corporation where there won't even be a human being there. The machines will plant the seeds, harvest them, water them, and it's just a completely corporate enterprise. So even the farm subsidies were really overwhelmingly going to corporate farms or to wealthy gentlemen farmers like Devin Nunes and uh, Chuck Grassley, uh, who benefited from all of this. Uh, so the reality is all the working class got from Trump was rhetoric, and I guess permission to sort of say in public the kind of racist, misogynist things that they had always wanted to be able to say, but couldn't in the past. Uh, and, and that seemed to be uh, enough for many of them. So you're, you're basically saying that they were in a form of agony, and in that agony, the Democrats abandoned them consciously, and they turned to Trump uh, for for salvation. And did Marx think that that would ever happen? You know, you've talked sometimes about the, the lumpen proletariat turning to reactionary forces. They'll align with whoever they think they can uh, align with to get some daily bread. Is it was this an example of something like that, where the Republicans benefited from the the real misery of the lower and the working class and went to Trump? Yeah, I think so. And in fact, many uh, of the people that, that we're talking here as working class are really former working class. Yes. They're really more lumpen proletariat than proletariat. So, you know, I'm not prepared to write off the entire working class. There's a progressive wing. There's even a progressive wing to the lumpen proletariat, potentially, as yeah. the Black Panthers pointed out many decades ago. They simply have to be organized in that direction. But it, but it means that that one of the things that Marx talks about in the Communist Manifesto 
is that the working class will only achieve a certain level of class consciousness on its own, that it will perceive its occupational interests, its industrial interests, but class interests, right, the interests of the class as a whole, uh, are effectively articulated, he says, by he called them initially communists with a small c that later got translated into the intellectuals. Uh, the, and that takes us the role of the intellectual in the socialist or working class movement. And one could say it's a failure of the intellectuals to articulate that position, to offer up that position. And of course, we work primarily through political parties. So we're back to the Democratic Party making an electoral decision about how it was going to organize itself to compete in elections rather than thinking about what is the long-term interest of our constituents. And that's a debate we're finally starting to have again because of the rise of groups like Black Lives Matter, the Democratic Socialists of America, and many others in this country. Wow. Let's wrap up with something about today. So my headline of today that I just read to you is uh, gospel free trade loses its luster. Biden keeps speaking about the working class, the working class. And, you know, he keeps talking about it. He did win back, you know, uh, uh, Wisconsin. He won Pennsylvania, some of the Rust Belt states. What's the Democratic strategy now? What would, what, what's their what's their goal? Uh, they're going to try to blip service this. They're going to do they're going to try to win elections with this. You know, these swing states. Have they woken up and realized they made a mistake? I think that's a possibility. I think, you know, I don't want to exaggerate my hope for Joe Biden, but I think he may surprise a lot of progressives for several reasons. I'll start with the fact, well, let's remember that Joe Biden's been in office in politics for a very long time, and he comes out of that old New Deal Democratic Party that you talked about at the beginning of the show. So he's sort of the last in that legacy. He's also referred to himself as a transitional president, that, that his job is to hand the party off to the next generation. Mm -hmm. And I think he can probably see that the next generation of up and comers, you know, is AOC and, mm -hmm. and the squad uh, and that that group of people who are coming up and, and he needs to position it for that. If you look at some of the things he's talked about, some of the things that he's already doing, I think it, it's no exaggeration when people say that this $1.9 trillion relief package that was proposed is probably the most significant thing the Democrats have done since the New Deal. And not just because of the size and the amount of money that's being spent, but because of how it's being spent, right? Direct payments to individuals, right? child allowances, which is a, a European phenomenon. Right. They're temporary, but they're already talking about making them permanent. That would be a, a very significant step toward universal basic income. We have student debt relief yeah. on, on the table. The only debate there is how big and, yeah. and how do you do it, but he certainly indicated he'll do something. He doesn't support uh, Medicare for all, but he's certainly prepared to move us closer in that direction by strengthening, expanding Obamacare. And of course, in the background now, something that could be very exciting talk about raising taxes, yeah. primarily on people who earn $400,000 a year or more, perhaps increasing the corporate income tax again, and they may do some other smaller things, talking about a financial transactions tax, which is something people have talked about now for decades, to generate a couple of trillion dollars for an infrastructure program, the thing that Trump promised and never delivered 
And I have a feeling, given the nature, that when we talk about infrastructure this time around, it won't just be the old New Deal thing of we're going to build highways and fix our airports and seaports and interstate highways. Uh, we're going to be talking about things like Internet access, which has become a big issue now yeah. because of the schools being closed and having to yeah. go online and finding that lots of people don't have Internet access. Healthcare infrastructure is, is a part of our basic infrastructure. That could really generate a combination of both blue-collar, sort of classical proletarian jobs, and sort of more middle-class, white-collar service sector jobs, but the kind that are full-time and actually pay good wages with good benefits. So, so, so once again, the, the Democrats are going to rescue capitalism from itself? <laughs> well, that will be the debate going forward, whether this is just more of cap, uh, yeah. saving capitalism from itself or whether this puts in, in place the platform for some kind of a more radical transformation of the system. And I think a lot of that debate will happen in the Democratic Party, and it will depend largely on uh, you know who wins control of the Democratic Party over the next you know two election cycles. And then, of course, there's the prospect that both political parties could splinter, and we yeah. end up with four parties. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I think this was enlightening and great. Thank you very much, Professor. It was, as always, through the Marxist lens, sheds a, a new way of looking at our culture and our society and our, our politics. Thank you so much. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.